Tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette. We are not broadcasting from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. This Memorial Day, we're actually broadcasting from my hometown of Virginia Beach, Virginia. I was, uh, I was born in Fredericksburg, but I grew up in Virginia Beach. So I'm up here visiting my grandparents for Memorial Day as we honor those who made the ultimate sacrifice in defense of our nation and its ideals. We got a lot to talk about today. We're going to have a lot of it focus on politics. Our president who spent his uh, past week overseas, some of the shenanigans going on in Montana, and then of course things going on with the police. And for our Law 140 segment, we'll talk about a case out of Georgia where a guy was acquitted of armed robbery but is serving a jail sentence for it anyway. We'll get to that in the back third of the episode. But I want to start, since this is Memorial Day, I want to recognize some veterans who actually lost their lives this past week. In Maryland, we had a neo-Nazi stab and kill Army 2nd Lieutenant Richard Collins III on the University of Maryland campus. He had the misfortune of being at a bus stop when this uh, this attacker came by, and supposedly he was drunk, but that doesn't really matter if you're a homicidal maniac, you're a homicidal maniac, stabbed the guy in the chest, and uh, Mr. Collins lost his life. And then out in Portland, just a few days later, another neo-Nazi was attacking a Muslim passenger on the metro, and three gentlemen stepped in to try and protect her. All three of them got stabbed. Two of them passed away. One was a um, army veteran. He was 53-year-old Ricky John Best. Uh, he died at the scene, and then 23-year-old Talisan Mirden Namke Meche. I apologize to his family. I know I probably butchered that pronunciation, but he was a 2016 graduate of Reed College, and he uh, he died at the hospital a short time later. There was also a third victim, 21-year-old Micah David Cole Fletcher who was stabbed in the neck, but thankfully uh, missed his jugular, so he's expected to survive. But, you know, as we we focus on Memorial Day, there's always a lot of discussion of uh, the history of the military, you know, the wars that we fought, the people that gave their lives uh, in service to the country overseas. But the fact is, you know, these folks gave their lives in service to people here at home as well. And I hope all of you will join me for a brief moment of silence honoring their memories. So let's talk about the political news. Our beloved papaya potist, Donald Trump, spent the past week overseas. And really, there are a few things that an American president by default should be able to do without too much effort. One of them is foreign policy, but this past week was an absolute disaster pretty much every step of the way. He started off traveling to Saudi Arabia, where, among other things, he was photographed with his hand on a giant orb of doom, uh, surrounded by other autocrats and dictators over this uh, replica of the globe, essentially. I'll give you a picture in the show notes, but it was comically hilarious. 
But among the other things, he ended up signing a deal with Saudi Arabia to sell them roughly $110 billion in weapons. Now, on the surface of it, you might think, oh, hey, $110 billion of Saudi money, that's great. But the fact is, Saudi Arabia needs those weapons because there is a civil war taking place in Yemen right now that is essentially Saudi Arabia on one side, Iran on the other, and both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have been preying on the lawlessness going on in the country to recruit, spread terror, that sort of thing. So essentially, we've gone from President Obama, who supported Saudi Arabia but was trying to tell them they really should not be taking sides in another country's civil war, to now Donald Trump saying, eh, fuck it, we're going to go ahead and go all gung-ho on one side, better pray that works out. So that will be an interesting experience. But then he went from Saudi Arabia to Israel and had this to say to the Israeli people. We just got back from the Middle East. We just got back to Saudi Arabia and uh, uh, we were treated incredibly well. We just got back from the Middle East. Where the fuck does he think Israel is? Jesus Christ. But, you know, that's okay. Minor faux pas. No big deal. The fact that he doesn't know his way around a globe probably isn't that unusual. Most Americans don't either. But then in a separate meeting, he talked about the classified information that he leaked to the Russians a couple weeks ago and said, I never mentioned Israel. I never said the word Israel in the leaked information. Basically making clear to everybody that he was definitely talking about Israel now, even though no one asked him that question as to whether or not he mentioned Israel. So that was day two or three of this global mess. He then went over to Rome to go meet with the Pope. The, uh, the pictures there were also comically hilarious. Uh, pope Francis does not seem to be terribly thrilled with uh, having Trump in the house. And uh, Melania looked like a, I don't know, she looked like she wanted to die. You know, she's dressed in the very traditional garb that you wear when you go to the Vatican, but it's something that you'd expect to see from a widow at a funeral, you know? So it looked like, you know, that was her, what she would rather be doing rather than standing there next to uh, Mango Mussolini sitting here being the first lady. But then from there, the Donald went to Europe to meet with the G7, which is the, uh, the seven most economically developed countries those leaders get together and uh, talk about policy and things. And it was just day after day of one embarrassment after another. Uh, there's one point where the new president of France, Emmanuel Macron, or Macron, however you pronounce his name, I'm not French, um, went up and rather than shake the president's hand, made sure to shake the hands of multiple other prime ministers first. And then in a separate photo op, he ended up having a handshake with Trump where, you know, I don't know if y'all have seen it, but there are multiple uh, videos where Trump has this way of trying to shake your hand and then pulling you towards him and everything else. Uh, Macron grabbed his hand in a fucking vice grip and Trump is there wincing in pain and it, it's, it's hilarious. So then they have this uh, meeting at NATO where a piece of the Berlin Wall has been donated by the Germans and a piece of the World Trade Center has been donated by the United States. And rather than reflect on the importance of the transatlantic alliance 
or what we do, Trump used it as an opportunity to whine. I mean, that's really what he did. He just whined. Here's a clip of, he had a 10-minute speech. I've excerpted two minutes of it, so it's a two-minute clip. It takes a while, but I want you to listen to the abject bitch-assness coming from the President of the United States. These grave security concerns are the same reason that I have been very, very direct with Secretary Stoltenberg and members of the Alliance in saying that NATO members must finally contribute their fair share and meet their financial obligations. But 23 of the 28 member nations are still not paying what they should be paying and what they are supposed to be paying for their defense. This is not fair to the people and taxpayers of the United States. And many of these nations owe massive amounts of money from past years and not paying in those past years. Over the last eight years, the United States spent more on defense than all other NATO countries combined. If all NATO members had spent just 2% of their GDP on defense last year, we would have had another $119 billion for our collective defense and for the financing of additional NATO reserves. I want to extend my appreciation to the 9-11 Memorial and Museum in New York for contributing this remnant of the North Tower, as well as to Chancellor Merkel and the German people for donating this portion of the Berlin Wall. It is truly fitting that these two artifacts now reside here so close together at the new NATO headquarters. And I never asked once what the new NATO headquarters cost. I refuse to do that. But it is beautiful. Dude, why the fuck are you talking about the cost of the NATO headquarters? Really? You know, this is something where most folks know just intrinsically when you're dealing with other people, you want them to do something for you. You don't bitch them out in public and on the stage. You know, it's just not something most people do. You don't call someone out on Twitter. You don't use an opportunity where you're supposed to be uh, being reverent and having a meeting and use that to complain. That's just ineffective diplomacy. So if that's ineffective diplomacy in your, your own personal life, what makes you think it would work on the international stage? Now, first off, there's an issue where Trump doesn't actually know what he's talking about, which I know knock you over with a feather. No one's surprised. But the fact is NATO has two different components to its spending. So one is the actual dues to be in the organization, and there are no organi- there are no countries in NATO that are behind on their dues. Every country has paid what it owes to the alliance. His 23 out of 28 nations stat is bogus. Now, in addition to the dues, which are the minimum requirement, each state has a discretionary spending target of 2% of GDP. Now, as far as that goes, he's correct. A lot of states don't put that much into it because... One, the United States has a lot of military spending. We also have a much bigger economy. But then on top of it, our technology has gotten so advanced 
and we're not willing to share it for national security reasons, that other countries can't really keep up. You know, one of the keys with NATO is that it's a multinational alliance. You need to have systems that talk with each other. And our technological capacity has completely dwarfed everyone else because after 9-11, we spent a shitload of money on the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the war in terror, you know, and as part of that, you end up with a lot of research and development that other countries can't match. So whether or not we want these countries to spend more money on defense is a great policy question. I think most conservatives, myself included, would agree that these countries need to chip in to make sure that they're partly responsible for their own defense. But at the same time, if we want technological supremacy in our military, which I think is absolutely necessary, we need to recognize that there's only so much they can spend money on that makes a whole lot of sense. Because if you're spending money on inferior tech that the U.S. is just going to come in and not be able to work with anyway, what's the point? So there's the whining there about NATO. He then has a separate meeting in Germany where he says the Germans are, quote, very bad, very bad. Like, we're going back to the fucking 1940s. And in response to his comments, the chancellor, Angela Merkel, or again, forgive these pronunciations. If you can't tell, I'm very American and I don't have television, so I don't know how they get pronounced aside from uh, when someone sends me a clip on the web. I think it's Angela Merkel. Don't quote me on that. But she ended up having a, uh, a speech to their parliament where she says, in essence, that the time has come where the Germans can't rely on the United States. Her quote says that they have to, quote, really take our fate into our own hands. The times in which we could rely fully on others, they're somewhat over. This is what I experienced in the last few days. Now, the America First crowd probably thinks that's great, but you know who also is going to be very happy to hear that? Vladimir Putin. Because few things have been a better check on Russian expansionism than NATO. You know, there was a huge tiff back when we were considering whether or not to let Turkey into the alliance because it was seen as encroaching on the Soviet sphere of influence. Now we've got Donald Trump, practically a Russian if we're being honest with each other, in the White House helping to essentially destroy this alliance that's been in place since after World War II. So that essentially is uh, our apricot authoritarian's time abroad. He spent an entire week shitting the bed. He has been a disgrace to the country pretty much every day he's been in office. His time overseas is no exception. But then when we come back, guess what's going on here? New questions about son-in-law Jared Kushner and Kushner's alleged plan to set up back-channel communications with the Russian government. Yes, the first kid, Jared Kushner, reached out to uh, Sergei Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, one of the Soviet spies that Trump invited into the White House a couple weeks ago, reached out to him back in the uh, November-December time frame to ask if we could use the Russians' communication facilities to talk with Moscow. And this was such an outrageous request that it's never been done before in the history of the United States, no matter what anyone tells you, that Kislyak was actually uncomfortable. Like, how outrageous does a request have to be when you make the Russians uncomfortable? So he actually contacted his superiors in Moscow and said, hey, this shit is going on. So that is now taking place. 
um, Kushner is being investigated. And when you listen to the news on this, all of the news stories say that he is not a target. He's not a target of the investigation. That's a bit of a misnomer. You see, in federal criminal work, there are certain terms of art that we use. And the main one, when you're describing who a person is, they're either a witness or a subject or a target. So a witness is just some person who has information that the feds would like to talk to them. A subject is someone who's being actively investigated, and they're at the subject stage when the government doesn't yet have enough information to prosecute. So Kushner is a subject of the investigation. But nine times out of ten, when you're a subject, the government's trying to compile stuff to go ahead and prosecute you. And then when you become a target... A lot of times you'll receive what is called a federal target letter where the government will say, hi, you're a target of our investigation. We're going to give you about two weeks to go ahead and confess and assist us and plead guilty, or we're going to bring the full weight of the federal Leviathan down on your head. So usually the target piece doesn't happen until near the end. So when you're a defense lawyer and you want to call and figure out what's going on, you'll call the special agent or the U.S. attorney, and your question is going to be, is my guy a witness or a subject? Because you never want to have someone at the point where they're a target. You want to try and keep somebody as a you know an unindicted co-conspirator or something along those lines. Um, so that is Kushner being investigated. This Russia drama just does not end. It's a constant drip, drip, drip that has been going on for months now. And uh, our Cheddar Ceausescu, Donald Trump, took to Twitter to complain about the fact that this is going on. He said, quote, It is my opinion that many of the leaks coming out of the White House are fabricated lies made up by the hashtag fake news media. Now, don't think too hard about that because if it's a lie, it's not really a leak. We know that the Donald doesn't have that great a command of the English language. But you can tell there's an old phrase we got in the South that a hit dog hollers. You know, there's some hits getting taken on the Trump family, and President Trump is hollering quite a bit. But enough at the presidential level. Let's also take a moment to talk about Congress critters, who are all scummy people. And Greg, journal slamming Giaforte uh, out of Montana, who is now the new member of Congress for that great state, after this. And what yeah, you we'll talk to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if okay, you have the Speak with right Shane, now. please. But you I'm sick and tired of you guys. The last time you came here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. The last guy did the same thing. You were the guardian? Yes, and you just broke my glasses. You, the last guy did the same damn thing. You just body slammed me and broke my glasses. Get the hell out of here. Now, the guy who had his glasses broke was Ben Jacobs, a reporter with The Guardian, and all he did was ask Gianforte about the new CBO score that came out, talking about Trump care and how many millions of people are going to lose their health insurance. You see, Gianforte is one of those politicians where he's a pussy and refuses to say what he thinks about legislation, so he kept trying to play coy and say, oh, I'll give you my statement on Trump care after the CBO score comes out. And then when the CBO score came out, he basically decided to beat the shit out of a reporter. 
this is the type of political culture that having Donald Trump as our president is helping to create. People say whatever the fuck they want. They do whatever the fuck they want. They randomly stab people on trains. They randomly body slam reporters. And then this snowflake son of a bitch got elected to Congress because Montana has early voting. And basically almost all of the vote had already been sent in prior to the body slam. And out of the people who hadn't voted yet, a good chunk of them thought it was a good idea, thought the media had it coming. We are totally fucked culturally until we have people who understand what it's like to have a meaningful dialogue and debate on issues without going all snowflake and trying to throw a temper tantrum because we don't like what someone is asking us. So Montana, congratulations. That's the piece of shit you've elected to Congress. We all are thankful for your fine leadership of this great country. So let's talk a little bit about some legal news. North Carolina has been taking some L's this week. The United States Supreme Court declined to issue a ruling in our uh, what we call the voter ID case. Essentially, the General Assembly passed an omnibus law of changes to voting. Uh, We made it more difficult to uh, produce an ID. You had to produce an ID to vote. The number of allowed IDs was heavily restricted. We changed the number of days you were allowed to have early voting. We got rid of pre-registration for 17-year-olds. There's a long list of stuff. And essentially, the district court said that it was fine, the district federal court. The North Carolina court said it was fine. And then the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said, no, it's not fine. Actually, the General Assembly targeted black voters with, quote, almost surgical precision. Uh, and, And part of that was because the GOP in North Carolina was actually stupid enough to send emails to other agencies saying, hey, let us know how people vote. And particularly let us know how the black people vote. Like, you couldn't get any more fucking stupid. If you want to do some kind of voter suppression law, you don't go ahead and commit to email the stuff you're trying to do. Like, it was just dumb. So it got appealed to the Supreme Court by the McCrory administration. Of course, Governor McCrory lost in the November election to Governor Cooper, at which point the uh, we also lost the attorney general race to Josh Stein a democrat so the governor and the attorney general tried to withdraw the appeal then the general assembly tried to intervene basically became a big old clusterfuck so the pre- supreme court said we're not going to touch this and chief justice roberts actually wrote an opinion saying us not touching it is not a uh, comment either way on the merits it's just y'all have been sending a lot of papers back and forth so uh, think about what you're doing before you come back to us again But then we also had a Supreme Court decision in our congressional gerrymandering case where the Supreme Court said that our 12th congressional district and our first congressional district here in North Carolina were both unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. So I will link that uh, opinion in the show notes as well. It was a long decision. It actually is going to – it will be interesting to see how it plays out. So essentially that case – took a prior 12th Circuit case involving North Carolina that found um, the case is Easley versus Cromarty. And what the court found there was that the gerrymandering was permissible. Uh, Here, they found the gerrymandering was not permissible, so the Cromarty case is essentially no longer good law. Uh, But it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of the decision turns out, because even though the decision on the 12th district was split, 
the decision on the first district was not. It was actually an 8-0 decision. Uh, Justice Alito, who dissented on the 12th, actually put in a footnote that he agreed with the outcome on the first. So we'll see how that shakes out. In addition, of course, the police are still crazy as hell. We have a case out in California where a 78-year-old woman, uh, 76-year-old woman, I'm sorry, was at the Union Station metro stop where a Metro employee gave her a card so she could sit in the seating area and talk with her old lady friends. And an officer came by, told her she had to leave. Then, as he's trying to talk her into leaving, she says, okay, give me my cane so I can stand up and go, because she's 76 years old. And the officer says, no, stand up, I'll give you your cane. Like, that just doesn't make sense if you need a cane to stand up. You know, you got to give them the cane first. Anyway, officers beat the shit out of the old lady. 76-year-old black woman. This was in uh, Los Angeles, California. So that'll be linked in the show notes. But if you thought that they only abused the old black ladies, no, that's not true. We also have a case out of San Antonio, Texas, where a 14-year-old was attending a quinceanera. Uh, Essentially, two adults got into a fight at that party. She just happened to be there. And the police basically punched her in the face. There were three officers who responded. One of them slugged this 14-year-old girl for no reason. Of course, it's caught on cell phone video because, you know, that's how it is nowadays. Police continue to do dumb shit even though they're likely being recorded. Um, So she was taken to Juvie, the detention facility for juveniles. Uh, She was later released. They think the charges are going to be dropped, but that's how it goes. If you're old, you get the shit beat out of you. If you're young, you get the shit beat out of you. Interesting statistic about San Antonio is that they are 78% more likely to use force on someone who is African-American or Hispanic uh, than they are white people. So cops are still crazy. And just as a statistical update, we are now up to 487 people killed by police so far in 2017. All right, that's enough for the news, folks. Let's transition into our Law 140 topic for this podcast on probation. So there were a lot of topic requests for this week's Law 140. People wanted to talk about uh, Rudy Giuliani, the, the memo, and how the Trump administration was refusing to turn that over. And then there was some discussion about how the whole Russia investigation was going to play out if we want to talk about that. But one of the things that got mentioned by the most people is this case out of Georgia involving a guy named Ramad Chapman. And essentially back in 2014, there was a robbery at a gas station in Georgia. And the video was, there was security video, but it wasn't very good. You couldn't identify who it was. And then the store clerk who had been held at gunpoint couldn't identify who her assailant was either. And then months down the line, she's surfing Facebook, notices this random black guy with a tattoo and says, hey, this is actually the guy who did it. I know for sure this is what happened. He's the guy. Uh, And they ended up bringing the guy to trial. Now, what's interesting is that this woman kept changing her story. And that's not terribly unusual for eyewitnesses, but in this case, it it was noticeable. So she kept saying that she remembered the tattoo that was under Chapman's eye, but couldn't remember the other tattoos that he had on his face or his neck or his hands or his arms. 
she kept changing the disc- uh, the description of the gun. First she said that it was a gold gun, then she said it was a black one. First she said he had on dark clothes, then she said he had on camouflage. Um, so it's just something where, you know, for example, she said she picked out Chapman in a lineup of several sheets of photos in a three ring binder. When in reality, what police did is give her what is called a six up, which is one sheet with six photos. Uh, those are no longer used often, or at least they're not supposed to be because of the fact that it leads people to wrongfully identify, um, assailants. So long story short, this guy goes to trial, gets found not guilty. Then there is a hearing on his probation because he's on probation for another charge and the judge revokes his probation, activates his sentence, sends him to jail for up to 10 years, saying that in his opinion, he committed this armed robbery that a jury acquitted him of. And as you can imagine, folks don't really understand that. It doesn't seem fair. But the fact is that's kind of the dirty underbelly of probation. It's something that happens a lot more often than you would think uh, it does. And it's not just in Georgia. It actually happens all over the place. And the reason why is that you have to think about the role that probation is designed to serve. So probation was set up as a way where rather than getting your unconditional freedom if you haven't committed a crime – or no freedom at all if you're convicted and end up incarcerated. Probation is designed to be kind of a limited freedom type deal where you have what is called unsupervised probation, which means that you are completely off on your own. You don't have to check in with anybody. And what you really have to do is just make sure you don't commit any other crimes during your probationary period. And then you have what is called supervised probation, where you have a probation officer that you check in with. You have to pay monthly probation supervision fees. In North Carolina, they're usually $30 a month. And there can be all kinds of conditions that a judge can attach. So you you can't commit any new crimes. That's a given. But probation officers have the power to drug test you, have the power to do spot checks of where you live, where you work, can order you to report to them at any time for any reason. And it's designed to be this hybrid where we're allowing you to still live out in the community, but at the same time, we're keeping a short leash on you to make sure that you don't go in the wrong path. And in response to that, a whole separate set of case law was developed around the concept of probation violations and what type of standard of proof is necessary to deal with a probation violation, whether or not your probation can be revoked or modified. And while folks are accustomed to this notion of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that doesn't really apply in a probation setting. The Supreme Court held in a case Morrissey v. Brewer, quote, the revocation of parole is not part of a criminal prosecution, and thus the full panoply of rights due a defendant in such a proceeding does not apply to parole revocations. Revocation deprives an individual not of the absolute liberty to which every citizen is entitled, but only of the conditional liberty properly dependent on observance of special parole restrictions. So in a lot of jurisdictions, and each state is a little bit different, but essentially what you have to prove if you're a prosecutor when it comes to a parole violation is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but just proof to a judge's reasonable satisfaction that the guy on parole or probation did what he was accused of doing. 
So even though a jury found Mr. Chapman not guilty of the offense, they found there was not enough evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to convict him, the judge can say, well, I think there is. Based on my lower standard, I'm reasonably satisfied that he actually did um, commit this particular crime. And so in North Carolina, that actually happens here. So we have a case, State versus Greer, which is a 1917 case where a probationer was revoked based on a new criminal offense, even though the jury found him not guilty. And the court said essentially that the jury verdict wasn't binding on the judge because of this differential in the standards that have to apply. So that case, that uh, concept that a judge can revoke probation even if you're found not guilty has been around for decades. It's actually been a century now in North Carolina. And when the, uh, our Court of Appeals took a look at it again in 1974, it basically ratified it as it's still okay. In State versus Debnam, the Court of Appeals said, quote, it may not be desirable for a judge to activate a suspended sentence upon conduct where a jury has found the defendant not guilty of a charge arising out of that conduct, but it appears to be within the power of the judge to do so. And this, what we call the Greer rule here, is actually similar to what they have in Georgia. Now, let me go ahead and say up front, I am not a Georgia lawyer. This is not to be relied on as Georgia legal advice. What I'm doing is I'm going to give you the case and essentially what it says. But if you're going to rely on this, make sure you talk to a Georgia attorney, etc., etc., etc. But in the case of Johnson versus Georgia in 1977, that is the first time that the Court of Appeals weighed in on this idea of whether or not a person who has been found not guilty by a jury could nonetheless have their probation revoked based on the judge's satisfaction about it. And in that case, they actually look at whether or not the revocation hearing violated the Fifth Amendment right not to be put twice in jeopardy uh, for the same offense. And the court basically says that what we do here in North Carolina, the exact same principle applies in Georgia. They cite a Fifth Circuit case that says, quote, all that is required is that the evidence and facts be such as to reasonably satisfy the judge that the conduct of the probationer has not been as good as required by the conditions of probation. And then they also go through Georgia appellate history and say, quote, this court recognized the slight evidence rule necessary to support a finding of a probationary violation in a string of cases. So essentially, they only need slight evidence to reasonably satisfy a judge uh, to end up revoking someone's probation. So in Mr. Chapman's case, he basically turned himself in when he found out that he was wanted for questioning because he, in his mind, knew that he was innocent of this particular uh, armed robbery. And the judge said, eh, there's a little bit of evidence here. I'm reasonably satisfied you did it. I'm going to go ahead and activate your sentence on this original charge that you had that you're currently serving probation for. Now, if you think that's unfair, you're not alone. There's a concept in the law that is known as collateral estoppel. Uh, the, the modern phrase for it is they call it issue preclusion. And essentially what that means is if there's a, a piece of a fact or a piece of law that has already gone to trial and been determined, you then can't sue again or prosecute again to try and redetermine that same fact. 
So a classic example would be, let's say that um, I hit you in a car accident and you claim that I'm drunk. And that's why this accident took place. You sue me for negligence. We go to trial and the judge finds that there's not enough evidence that I was actually intoxicated. So because of that, I happen to win the case. You don't get any money from me. Well, the district attorney then can't prosecute me for the DUI. You can make an argument that collateral estoppel should apply and that the criminal charge should go away because there's no evidence that I was drunk. Now, that doesn't automatically work in reverse. If I'm found not guilty of DUI, let's say I'm criminally charged first and I'm found not guilty, that may not apply in a civil case because the criminal case has a much higher standard of proof. So even though I was found not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, I could still be guilty by a preponderance of the evidence, which is the standard we use in civil proceedings. So you kind of have this, this similar play between the standards of proof in the probation context. A jury has a much higher standard to meet in a criminal trial. A judge does not. You can still make the argument that collateral estoppel should apply because it's just not fair, but that's just not the way that our laws are currently set up. So if that's something that you want changed, one of the ways to do it is to elect new legislators and elect new appellate judges and try and get the law changed that way. But long story short, Mr. Chapman got screwed by the Georgia system. Uh, if you're ever in Georgia, they're, they're a unique kind of crazy. I have a bunch of lawyer friends down there, and they tell me stories all the time. Um, so that's kind of how that goes. So if you have any questions about the Chapman case or anything else, let us know on Twitter. You can follow the show using at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. I'm on Twitter at at Greg underscore Doucette. That is at G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. You can also leave us a comment at the Fiskamall website, Fiskamall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And of course, the shameless begging part of the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please, please, please leave us a review. In particular, leave us a review uh, through the Apple Store, the iTunes Store, podcast app, however you want to do it. You might be able to leave reviews on other platforms too, I don't know. Uh, but leave us a review so that other folks who are looking for this show can kind of get a feel for what it's about. And please tell your friends about it. We're almost to the point where we're getting so close to having our first milestone of 1,000 subscribers. Please help us spread the word so that we can help people get informed about what's happening uh, in America with both our political and legal file systems. Y'all, thank you so much for listening. I hope all of you have a blessed Memorial Day and a great week ahead. Take care. Mm-hmm.